Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. It's holiday time, but there's a good crowd here. Um, just to explain that, of course, our pastor, Craig, and his wife, Kelly, they're away on holiday, so you've got the, the reserve team this morning. <laughs> well, I don't know if it means we, the, 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 the Iranian is, Persian is now redundant. Oh, yeah, we've still got it. So we, I've been, the next passage from Luke that uh, has been allocated to me, Luke 13, 10 to 17, I've entitled Free at Last. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Luke 13, verse 10. See on the screen. Okay, Luke 10, 13. Sorry, Luke 13, 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, uh, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Heavenly Father, please help us now by your Spirit to hear what you're saying to us through this passage. Amen. It's only Luke that records this incident. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. Why he included it here is not obvious, but it may be that having referred to 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, which we looked at last week, he thought that was a suitable point to uh, tell what happened to a woman who'd been disabled for 18 years. He doesn't tell us where the synagogue was, he doesn't tell us what Jesus was preaching, teaching. Earlier, of course, in, in Luke's Gospel, uh, in chapter 4, we're told the passage of Scripture that Jesus read in the synagogue in, in Nazareth and what he said about it. He, he, he read that he was anointed, he said, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom from the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, release to the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favour. So we can assume that he's preaching a very similar message in this particular synagogue. The good news of the kingdom of God the, uh, one scholar likes to think that the passage that Jesus read was actually from Leviticus 26 verse 13, which goes like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be slaves. And I have broken the bars of, the, of your yoke and enable you to walk upright and erect. That would have been a very appropriate reading uh, and would have given that woman real hope 
even after 18 years of suffering. The same that that woman had been robbed of a significant part of her human dignity. Because that's reflected in our upright stance uh, as human beings. That upright stance, the fact that we stand upright, is, is actually a, a, an expression of the dignity that we have created in the image of God to have dominion over all other living creatures. So we stand upright, but this woman couldn't stand upright. Uh, and he goes on and says, bent back is the typical physical posture of the burden bearer and the slave under the yoke. Luke doesn't tell us either whether this woman had consulted many doctors, <laughs> which is, uh, or paid a lot of money, uh, which is what, of course, Mark says about the woman who, who'd had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, uh, he doesn't say. Luke, of course, was a doctor himself, a medical doctor, seems to be rather reluctant to make negative remarks about other doctors, so he doesn't say. <laughs> a modern diagnosis, of course, and I'm out of my depth here, of course. Uh, a modern diagnosis would refer to spondylitis uh, or scoli scoliosis or something like that. Luke is a, is a doctor. That, okay, so he's very careful in the way in which he describes various conditions of people. This woman's problem was created by a spirit, by which presumably means a demon. Okay? It doesn't mean, of course, that she was completely demon-possessed like legion, but rather that she's, been under, she's under the influence of demonic activity. And that diagnosis, of course, is confirmed by Jesus when he says that it was Satan who kept her bound for these 18 years. Again, I don't think we're intended to conclude that all disease uh, and illness are the direct result of Satan's activity, using one or more of his demons, but we should be open to that possibility. <coughs> the possibility of satanic involvement in at least some of our ailments. Now, some of you may already have problems with this talk about Satan and demons. I'm not going to get into it in any depth this morning, but simply to say that once you've accepted that there is a God, there's an unseen world, an unseen spiritual world, and that Jesus very clearly and the apostles taught that there's there's a, uh, a being called Satan and that he has a whole host of fallen angels, demons, then, you know, you, you accept it. Um, and then you read C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Screw Tape Letters, of course, as Neil told us the, the other week. Um, yeah, okay. In this scientific age, we find it difficult. We find the whole business of unseen world, God, angels, demons, difficult. But the alternative is to diffuse what the Bible is telling us and what Jesus thought. So that's your choice. When, it, when it's the case of Paul, of course, later, uh, he described his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, as a messenger of Satan. How he knew that, I don't know. God gave him a, a, a gift of discernment, perhaps. The important thing is, when you read that passage in, in um, 2 Corinthians 12, the, he implies that it was God who gave it to him, right? Because he knew that Satan couldn't touch him unless God 
gave him permission. And that, of course, you, you see very clearly in the story of Job as well, don't you? So, a messenger of Satan, says Paul, but God allowed it. God sent him. God allowed him to do it. Now, well-known American preacher is well-known to some of us, John Piper has, has produced a, a book recently called Providence. It's only got 700 pages. It's, it's quite a heavy work. But um, I'm, just, I'm just reading it at the moment. And he says this, If God rules Satan so thoroughly, why doesn't he use his power and wisdom to put Satan out of existence now? Why not cast him into the lake of fire now, which Revelation 20 verse 10 says he will eventually do? And Piper says that although the Bible doesn't answer this question directly, there are pointers. And one is that by progressively defeating Satan, God is showing more of his own attributes. And then he actually refers, Piper refers to this incident in, in Luke chapter 13, which is why I'm quoting him, and he says this, Jesus is going to heal her completely which means that God could have healed her at any time during those 18 painful years. He was powerful and compassionate enough to do it at any time. But instead, he permitted Satan to have his ugly way in her body for 18 years. And the upshot of that healing her was that... Uh, I'm, I'm quoting still. The upshot of healing her was that Jesus' adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. So, Piper says, we don't know exactly why God permitted this woman to be bound by Satan for 18 years, but we do know this. Jesus defeated Satan in exposing the hypocrisy of his adversaries and in showing his compassion and authority and power so that people rejoiced in his glorious deeds. God got the glory. And he then concludes that this one incident gives a glimpse into God's larger purpose for his timing in defeating Satan. From this story, we may infer that part of God's purpose is to show more aspects of God's glory by the manifold demonstrations of his superiority over Satan that would be shown if he had put Satan out of existence all at once. More, or by that. And I think you can see a, a similar thing, of course, in, in John chapter 9, with the man who was born, uh, born blind, uh, and the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God gets the glory even when we are not immediately healed. There's a very difficult statement that God makes to Moses that many people stumble over. God said to Moses, when Moses said, I can't speak properly, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's a difficult thing. But you see, the alternative to that 
is, 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 is denying the sovereignty of God. And we're left simply uh, attributing our, our disabilities either to Satan or to the impersonal results of defective DNA. There's no comfort in those sort of answers. Ultimately, we need to be, say, God is in control. God is sovereign. God has allowed this to happen to me or to my friends or to the people in my church for his own purposes and for his glory. Now, George MacDonald describes what happens here uh, in this incident as an unsolicited miracle of healing. You see, the woman didn't approach Jesus, not like the woman with, with the hemorrhage who went up and touched the, the, the hem of his garment, the fringe of his cloak. This time, Jesus spots her in the synagogue and, he, and he, he caught her. We don't know whether she went to the synagogue every Sabbath day or whether she'd come just because she heard that Jesus was, was going to be there that day. Nothing said about the woman's faith, but it surely implies. Jesus puts his loving, healing hands on this woman, a sign of his compassion for her, and she responds immediately by straightening up. That's faith. That's accepting. Jesus says, be healed, and she's healed. He describes her as a daughter of Abraham, which may simply mean a, a Jewish woman, but I like to think it means someone who has faith. Paul says to the Galatians, those who believe are the children of Abraham. So, we've had a look at the woman. Now let's, let's for a few moments, look at this ruler of the synagogue. I don't think it can be possibly be Jairus, who you may remember uh, an early incident where his daughter was brought back to life by Jesus. I can't imagine him objecting to Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. I, I would hope not, wouldn't you? One commentator speculates uh, that this synagogue ruler has uh, specially invited Jesus to teach in his synagogue. But he wants Jesus to enjoy the best religious teacher of the day. He regards Jesus as a good religious teacher. It'll do his congregation good to have this visiting preacher, you know? But in the event, something's happened that, that has uh, made him shocked and angry. He loses control of himself and he finishes up by interrupting Jesus and scolding the people for allowing such a thing to happen on the Sabbath day. Actually, it reads as if he's warning the people, but of course he's really rebuking Jesus, isn't he? You know, shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath day. Yes, he wanted Jesus to preach, apparently, but he hadn't wanted anything to happen when Jesus preached. Right? He wanted nothing to upset the usual quiet routine of teaching and listening and enjoying the preacher. Not today, of course, but He'd expected the word of God to sort of create a, a mild flutter and a pleasant sensation as the preacher brought new ideas and theories, uh, but he didn't want any deep-seated disturbance in the lives of the people or in the social or political or ecclesiastical structures of the day. In other words, for this man, probably the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching about is still future. It's almost a pipe dream, you know? like the Pharisee we're going to meet in chapter 14, if we ever get there. Uh, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells the parable uh, in which the servants of the man who was throwing the party were sent out with the announcement, come, for all things are 
now already. The kingdom of God, you can enter now. That's, that was the teaching of Jesus. It's a present reality in his arrival. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing available now to those who come with simple, repentant faith to Jesus. There's deliverance available, physical and spiritual, now. All that people need to do is come to Jesus and experience the power of the kingdom now. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what the ruler of the synagogue couldn't accept. That's what we need to accept. So let's stop and ask ourselves, and ourselves is we the preachers, and you the congregation, do we expect things to happen when God's word is preached? When the scriptures are explained? Is this a, a living word or a dead doctrine? Huh? Do we expect people to experience the power of the kingdom? Do we expect to see lives changed? People released from spiritual bondage? People released from dependence on drugs or, or other addictive medicines? People being healed of physical and mental conditions, whether they're short-term or chronic? Those are very, very important questions. You see, Jesus responds to this ruler of the synagogue, to his objection was, you hypocrites! Notice the plural, not just him, but presumably he was lumping in with all the other Pharisees, I'm not sure. And Jesus contrasts the leader's indignation at the woman's being healed on the Sabbath with a Jew's readiness to give water to their domestic animals on the Sabbath day. Didn't that involve works? Didn't that break the fourth commandment? See, on another occasion, which is only in Matthew, Jesus replies, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus had this, this arg argument before, you can see that, can't you? Now, the teaching of the rabbis, as later recorded in the second century collection called the Mishnah, allows cattle to be led on the Sabbath day, as long as they don't carry a load, to be tied up on the Sabbath to prevent them from wandering, it also describes the wells at which the cattle can drink without violating the Sabbath. And one of the Dead Sea Scrolls actually allows um, animals to be taken 3,000 feet on the Sabbath day. <laughs> so, in other words, neither the ruler nor the synagogue can dispute that Jesus was describing a common practice. How, then, how can they show compassion to their animals on the Sabbath but not to this woman. That's inconsistency, isn't it? That's hypocrisy. And we're very good at accusing other people of hypocrisy, but um, look inside. It's true, of course, that the woman wasn't suffering from a life-threatening condition, was she? She could have waited another day. What's the, what's one more day? Fifteen years. But Jesus argues that her healing on the Sabbath was not only not wrong; it was most appropriate. What better day for someone to be released from bondage to Satan than on this, this special day, this, this sanctified day? <laughs> Such activity is ideal for the day when people are to rest and they are to worship God. Better the day, better the deed. Yeah. 
Now, what's God saying to us to this, this aspect of the the, 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 the reaction of the, of the uh, ruler of the, of the synagogue? We probably, here this morning, don't have any, or many, any probably, hang-ups about Sunday, I guess. You know? I may be wrong. <laughs> it was different when some of us were growing up, right? There were things we were not allowed to do on Sunday. There were things that we were expected to do. It's tradition. Right? Now, thankfully, we've been released, you know, free at last, from those forms of bondage to tradition. But we've still got to be on our guard, haven't we? That we don't do, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, make the word of God void for the sake of our tradition. Now, I'm not going to try and sort of suggest, I can leave you to go away and think about this, and I think the, the church leaders particularly need to go away and think about this, is the Lord saying to us, you know, there are some dead traditions in this local church. Oh, it's all very lively and it's all very nice. You can do, do almost anything you like. But um, are there actually some dead traditions? Are there things holding us back? We need to check it out. We need to be sure. We, we mustn't be in the position where we say, oh, we've never done it this way. Oh, we always do it that way. Oh, it's so easy, isn't it? That's what was happening in that synagogue there. Now, I want to come back to this area of miraculous healing. Oh, no, I can't cover the whole topic this morning in it now. I'll leave it to Craig anyway. I have a friend in Scotland uh, who's been suffering from ME for decades, almost as long as I've known him. And he's often remarked to me how difficult the local church finds it to cope with people who have chronic, long-term illnesses or disabilities. You know, we're quite good at, at praying for people and supporting them when they've got short-term illness, which they then recover from or, or are healed from. But we, we're, not, we're not quite sure how to deal with people where it goes on and on and on, year after year after year, 18 years for this woman. We're not sure. It's calling a, for a great persistence in prayer, and we're not sure what to pray. Is that right? You, am, I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I scratching where someone itches? Oh. All I'm going to say this morning, because you know, there's a time restraint and so on, is there? And anyway, I don't seem to have it all tied up. Whether we have long-term or short-term health problems, we, and that is the individual, and we as the church family, community, we should first of all seek God for healing, okay? As well as encouraging the person to get medical help, whatever medical help there is, available. And then we've got to be ready for at least three possible answers. First of all, God may answer immediately with miraculous healing. That is, without any human intervention, with any med without any medical treatment. As, it, as I see it, experience suggests that in the case of chronic conditions, things that the medics would call in incurable, miraculous healing doesn't happen very often, at least here in the West. I don't know why. That's, I'm trying to be honest. But there's no point in pretending that healing would happen when they don't, is there? Right? That's fair. 
That's not, a, not, that's not a reason for not praying. So we start with the praying, praying for healing. Secondly, God may reply after we prayed, keep, not now, I'm not going to answer now, I'm not going to heal now, but keep on praying and keep on receiving medical treatment until I do answer. Why? Because God wants us to grow spiritually. He wants to, to grow through the process of waiting and looking to him. So the answer may be immediate. The answer may be not yet. But the answer may well be not at all. At least in this life. When we go back to Paul with his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would take it away. And God in effect says, no, I'm not taking it away. But by my grace, I... I'm going to give you sufficient grace for you not only to be able to bear it, but to experience my power working through you in whatever way God wants to. And the healing doesn't come until the resurrection of the body. I think we have to face up to that. How we know? How did Paul know? I, I imagine uh, God spoke to him in a vision or a dream or or a prophet brought a message, I don't know, but the Lord will speak. The Lord will tell us, pray. Three times he prayed, take it away. Then he knew no. That's not. And of course, this sort of situation is particularly the case the older the sufferer is. Again, we have to be honest. You know? And we have to just think about how we pray for elderly people with chronic disease. Is it God's will to heal them? Was it God's will to take them in the end? Well, all of us, yeah. So I've just stirred, him, stirred the pot round a bit this morning, you know. I hope made you think. Um, come and see me afterwards if you're worried about it. Going. The final point I want to make is this. It's already been made many times this morning. Even. If you come to God in repentance this morning and ask for forgiveness for a life that's left him largely out of your life. Freedom from bondage to sin and Satan, if it's, although you may not be aware of the Satan's role in it. If you, are, if you come to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, God will answer immediately. Okay? This is, this is, this is, this is salvation. Physical, mental healing, this is salvation. You come... He will answer immediately. So why is anybody holding back? Why is someone here this morning holding back when you know you should come? That's it, really. Well, that's a beach boys. One last, one last thing. Oh, I'm not getting ready. <coughs> Excuse me. There's an American scholar called Christy Stendhal. Lisa once said, "Don't read the cookbook. Serve the meal." Good one, isn't it? Huh? People don't just want you to read from the Bible. Oh, a wonderful miracle happened in in that synagogue long long time ago when Jesus was there. Don't just read it. 
We want the meal. We want it now. We want it here, do we? Okay. So there's, there was tea and coffee, of course. But there's prayer. And there's people willing to pray with you. I about, or anything, as you'll see. Anything. Healing, physical, mental, whatever problems you've got. Particularly if you want help to, to give your life to Jesus, somebody will want to help you there. Okay? So you can squeeze behind those, those um, screens. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just going to pray. Shall we pray? Just put the humour aside for a minute. <laughs> Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this passage. We've uh, raised a whole lot of issues, at least in my mind, and I've tried to share them honestly uh, with uh, my church family here. Uh, and I trust that something's been helpful, that you've been speaking by your Spirit, and that we will go away uh, encouraged. Encouraged to keep on praying. So, Lord, we... we we leave ourselves with you now and, and for the coming week in the name of Jesus. Amen.